As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Kept you on your toes this Advent season. You can't just put a bookmark there and flip back to it next week. So Matthew 1, the first book in the New Testament. And uh, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I'm pretty sure it's page 807. It's also printed in the bulletin. Without further ado, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus sends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you during this Christmas season, knowing that we need your Son, our Savior. Would you remind us once again this morning how much we need him and how much we have him, how every need that we have can be met through faith in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your eternal happiness requires a series of miracles. But what if you don't believe in miracles? Well, why don't you believe in miracles? Do you think miracles or the existence of God are just impossible? Are you certain of that belief? And, and why are you so certain? Is your certainty in the non-existence of miracles based on, frankly, a godlike knowledge of the truth? Has humility disappeared from your epistemology, your study of knowledge, how we know things to be true. All I'm doing right now is asking you to be honest about your assumptions, your presuppositions. And let me attempt to share my assumptions before we dive into Matthew chapter 1. I assume that God created the world, that God created mankind in a beautiful garden, in a covenant relationship with Him, that mankind broke the everlasting covenant. And that our problems are the result of the curse of Genesis 3. That God's word tells us a grand story of how the seed of the woman will redeem us from the curse by crushing Satan, crushing all of his and our enemies, including sin and death itself. And that God tells us this, this story, by baby talking to us. 
that the infinite God with infinite wisdom condescends, stoops down, and uses human language to reliably communicate truth to us. His ways are higher than our ways, yes, but he cannot lie. And I should not doubt what he tells me in his word, which has been providentially preserved through the ages. In short, I'm assuming that the all-powerful God works a series of miracles as he accomplishes and applies our salvation to us as he reveals that salvation to us. A miraculous conception which paves the way for a miraculous salvation for God's people, all of which is communicated to us because of a miraculous revelation. Your eternal happiness requires a series of miracles. So aren't you glad we have a miracle-working God this morning? First point this morning, <clears throat> miraculous conception. Miraculous conception. You see it in verses 18 through 20. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All that follows Matthew's genealogy or family tree of Jesus. In short, he is a son of Abraham and a son of David, and he is sort of a son of Joseph. Joseph is the focus of this story. You learn more about Mary over in Luke chapter 1. Joseph and Mary, it says, are betrothed. Betrothal was more official than engagement. The betrothed were called husband and wife even though at that time they lived separately in their parents' homes for up to a year before the official marriage when the husband would take his wife into his home, at which point the marriage would be consummated physically. Abstinence from physical sexual relationship was the expectation. The husband was expected to pledge his life before he and his wife enjoyed that privilege of marriage. They were consenting to life together not just a few moments together. And so when Mary was found to be with child, it's a pretty big deal. Most would assume she had been unfaithful. She'd slept with someone else. What did Joseph think? Did Joseph not believe Mary's story that the Holy Spirit had worked a miracle within her to fulfill an ancient prophecy? Did he not believe that? Why do we assume that Joseph heard it? directly from Mary. Mary was probably a young girl living at home at her parents' house. No cell phone to text him. We have no idea what her parents thought. Might have been outraged and embarrassed, ashamed at the supposed sin of their daughter. They may not have believed Mary's story. They, might have, they may not have dared to repeat it when they or another messenger informed Joseph of all of this. And as Keener and Davis point out, Mary and Joseph may have had very little face time before marriage. And it may well be that Joseph and Mary did not know each other that well. What did Joseph know? What did he conclude? He knew she was pregnant. He may have thought she had been with someone else. As for the rest, we're guessing. But how does Joseph handle the situation? See, to end a betrothal required a divorce. Does he want to embarrass Mary publicly so that he might save face? No, he's ready to do it quietly, it says, because he is 
unwilling to put her to shame. As verse 19 explains, he is a just or righteous man. But the main point of the story, of course, is not how all this felt for Joseph and Mary, though it must have been very hard for both of them. The point is what it takes for our Savior, our Messiah or Christ, to come into the world and eventually bear the penalty for our sins. It requires a miracle, a miracle of divine conception. Matthew writes, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Knox Chamblin writes in his commentary, this is all we need to know. Our curiosity about the exact manner of the Spirit's work is not satisfied. The evangelist's reticence reflects their sense of wonder before a holy and impenetrable mystery. And do not forget the point of this mystery, this miracle, this superseding of the observable laws of nature as they're understood by our finite minds. The point is this. This is the only way we could be saved. The only way that God could become man so that he might complete the work of our salvation. Our eternal happiness requires a series of miracles. <clears throat> and of course, not everyone believes in miracles. True enough, jo Joseph seems to have not thought this was a miracle at first. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Any modern man who believes in God can accept the miracle as easily as St. Joseph did. Craig Keener says it this way, One cannot deny testimony for a miracle by dismissing it on the grounds that miracles cannot happen. Keener is saying that's circular logic. That's a logical or a scientific error. If your starting point is that miracles cannot happen, then of course you're going to reject all evidence that leads to the conclusion miracle. Doesn't mean you've proven your point, your, your starting assumption that miracles can't happen. The alternative the Bible presents to us claims to be the Word of God, and it shows us both the, the normal stuff, the laws of nature, the seasons, and all that stuff. And then it shows us a God who supersedes those things, those laws of nature, and does it from the earliest pages of the Bible. Creation itself is a supernatural act and a miracle, so why should, why should we be surprised if God is working more miracles? especially when it comes to the eternal salvation of his people, the birth of our Savior. You and I cannot save ourselves. It's one of the great truths of the Bible. We're dead in our sins and transgressions. We sinned in Adam and fell with him in Adam's first transgression. So it will take an alien, an outside force to change that. Is that hard to believe? Both about what God did and about how bad we are? Yes, it is. Which is why God gives us a miraculous revelation. That's our second point this morning, miraculous revelation, verses 20 to 23. Sometimes it takes a lot to change a husband's mind. Can I get an amen on that? Rough crowd this morning, verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Now you might wonder, why doesn't God communicate, us, communicate with us like this now? Because we have the complete word of God to meditate upon day and night, all that we need for life and godliness. New Christians and longtime Christians, have you meditated upon this word, read it, all of it? You know, if you want to get started, one of our elders reads the whole Bible once a year. I try to do it. It usually takes me 13 months. Another elder, Dale Otterman, reads through the Bible once every three years so that he can slow down, meditate more. If you want his plan for doing that, he'll share it with anybody who wants it. Back to Joseph. For some reason, he doubted. Even good men doubt sometimes. The disciples doubted. In Matthew 28, as Jesus was pronouncing the great commission. So the Holy Spirit knows this. He reveals to Joseph what God was up to. He says, the son of David, he tells this son of David, Joseph, that his future wife is going to bear the son of God. He doesn't use those words. He says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit, from God himself, one of the three persons of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, What's he saying? He's saying, she has not been unfaithful, Joseph. She has been chosen for a special mission. And you've been chosen too. So do not fear to take her as your wife. Oh, you may take on questions. Slander from the community. But you will also take in the mother of the Lord and the Lord himself. And all this is connected, it says, to Isaiah 7, 14. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew explains means God with us. Eternal happiness requires a series of miracles, and you can't work miracles. But one miracle requires something from you. You must believe. Jesus will save his people from their sins, those who believe in him. And it takes a miracle for us to believe. In fact, if you want to think of it this way, I think it takes at least two miracles. First, God must reveal the miraculous work to us, and then we must believe. Dead men and women, again, cannot believe on their own. But if you want to believe, then ask God to help you believe. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all and it will be given him. And if you want to believe, and if you want to ask him to help you believe, it may be proof that he is already working the miracle of faith in your heart. Joseph needed a miraculous revelation in order for him to believe what God was doing. We need no less even if it comes in a different form. You see, I'm not saying we need a dream from an angel. That's not what I'm saying, and God does not promise that. But we do need the God-breathed, as 2 Timothy says, text of Scripture. Or as Peter says, I'll read the verse we read earlier and one more, First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Lots of numbers there. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the miracle that is the Scriptures, the miracle of revelation. Words written and preserved by the Holy Spirit through the pen, through the minds, personalities of finite men. There are still those who doubt this word. Because you know it takes another miracle for us to believe. To grab hold of God's good promises to us. Theologians call it the work of illumination. You might call it the miracle. Maybe miracle is too strong. I don't know. The work of illumination. Another work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Second Corinthians 3 and 4 talks about a veil over our eyes until God lifts that veil. The same idea. The Holy Spirit doesn't change the words on the pages of Scripture like some magic decoder in. No, instead he just rubs away the blurry spots from our eyes causes us to clearly see what was there all along. Another way to say it, until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes through the miracle of illumination, the miracle of revelation doesn't change us. Not until He opens our eyes. One more way to say it. You and I did not believe in Jesus because we are better, smarter, more sophisticated than Joseph, than first century folks, then then those other 21st century folks which aren't enlightened enough to believe. It reminds me of Deuteronomy 7.7. I almost read this last week when we talked about the little town of Bethlehem. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, God says to Israel. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I knew someone who used to paraphrase that verse like this. God didn't choose you because you were cute. Kind of like what Paul, the murderer turned apostle, says about his own story of salvation. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 1 Timothy 1.16 Eternal happiness requires a series of miracles. That should never make us proud. It should always make us grateful and humble. The miracle of revelation which gave us the Bible, it should make us grateful and humble so that we tremble at his word, as Isaiah 66 says. The miracle of illumination by which we can taste and see that God is good, that should also make us grateful and humble. There's one more miracle to talk about. That's our third point, miraculous salvation. Miraculous salvation, verses 21 to 25. Now to review, we've seen a miraculous conception, which Joseph seemed to doubt at first. 
Then a miraculous revelation helped him understand it. A virgin will bear a son, God with us, Emmanuel, a son of David named Jesus or Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. and He will save his people from their sins. All the puzzle pieces are coming together for Joseph and hopefully for us. Do not miss the point of the miraculous conception. Do not miss the point that was revealed to Joseph and to us. This miraculous salvation. He will save his people from their sins. As Chamblin says, God's kingdom is to be established by a divine invasion rather than through human progress and social reform. Now, side note, Knox Chamblin was one of the kindest men I've ever met. He would have agreed, I'm sure, that the gospel leads to social reform when the good news of Jesus Christ rules and reigns in our hearts. But get the order right. King Jesus reforms us. We don't reform the world to clear the way for Jesus. He reforms us first and foremost. In Jesus' day, there was another misunderstanding that was floating out there. God's people thought Messiah would be some kind of national liberator to drive out the Romans. No mention of that here. Salvation from their sins, God's people's sins, not from the sins or the sovereignty of Rome. And if you've been with us the last two or three weeks, this shouldn't be a surprise. Sin plunged mankind into misery. Separation from God, separation from God's paradise. This is the problem that needs to be solved. The problem that leads to all the other problems in our society. If we're not in right relationship with our God and Creator, then we won't be in right relationship with our fellow created beings. Our unity with one another will be surface deep at best if God has not worked his miracle of salvation in both of our hearts. Earlier this week, I heard Harry Reader say this, the heart, the problem is the problem of the heart. It's one of those things he's probably said a thousand times, but nonetheless. But also notice here, how God's miracle of salvation, how it results in the obedience of one man in particular. Verse 24, 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. <clears throat> Notice the restraint, kindness of Joseph. After they're married... He waits to consummate the marriage because the prophecy said the virgin will conceive and give birth because he waits. She was a virgin when she gave birth. Joseph wanted to remove all doubt regarding God's miraculous conception. And there's more obedience and righteousness that you see from Joseph. He, he names the boy Jesus. He names the boy Jesus. Therefore, he claims Jesus is his legal son, not his biological son, but legally. Jesus is the son of Joseph, who is, of course, a son of David. Some scholars think Mary descended from David as well. Good arguments for that. But you know, Joseph does more than the bare minimum here, doesn't he? To obey the angel's command. Despite all the obstacles that might have been there, the 
public shame, the misunderstandings, the slander. And by the way, this is not simply hypothetical. Later in Jesus' life, there were insinuations that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, that he was an illegitimate child. All of, all of that was there. Despite all of this, Joseph, the son of David, did not fear to take Mary as his wife and all that came with it. When the prophecy of Isaiah 7, the Emmanuel prophecy, when that was given, another son of David was told, do not fear, but he did. King Ahaz feared man, he feared the enemy. He feared, you might say, the uncertainty in his mind of trusting God. He didn't want to walk by faith, so he didn't. So God gave Ahaz and Israel a sign, the virgin will conceive a son. His name will be Emmanuel. That was bad news for King Ahaz, but good news for God's faithful people. We explained all that when we looked at Isaiah 7 several months ago. But bottom line, one son of David, King Ahaz, feared and did not obey, did not trust in Isaiah 7. But years later, another son of David, the lowly carpenter, did not fear. And he obeyed God. The miracle of our salvation is the culmination of many miracles. And one of them is what you might call the miracle of one man's obedience. The obedience of a righteous father who was faithful to obey in a bunch of ways that weren't flashy, that didn't earn him recognition from the masses. He wasn't nominated for father of the year. Fathers, listen to me. Do not underestimate the value of being a good father. Do not underestimate the value of quiet, faithful obedience over the long haul. Your God sees it and is pleased. Your children and wife see it, maybe more than even they realize. I've been waiting to tell this story for at least a few weeks. Last year, I reconnected with some old college friends. The Seven of us have a group text, mostly to talk about Alabama football. Some of you think that's what I do 24 hours a day. I understand. But two months ago, the group text got a little serious. Jill, not her real name, let us all know that her father had cancer. But he's going to be okay. Surgery should take care of it all. Then a few of us traded stories about how scared we were when our fathers got diagnosed with cancer. And then Jill said this, Yeah, it's weird to think that we're the ages our parents were when I thought they had life all figured out. I, in fact, do not have it all figured out. Several of us agreed. And another friend said this, I'm a little jealous of that sentiment. I knew from a very early age that my parents didn't have anything together. Some of you know exactly what he's talking about. Maybe your parents aren't together like his aren't. Maybe they are, but they're unhappy. There might be a thousand different reasons you identify with his comment. Maybe the thought of your parents brings anxiety and fear, not comfort, especially as Christmas gets closer and you know you're going to see them. So I'll say it again. Do not underestimate the value of being a good father. Do not underestimate the pain that 
bad fathers can inflict. But Joseph the father, not the most important character in this story, who is? It's the one who initiates a miraculous conception and a miraculous revelation and a miraculous salvation. It's our heavenly father who sent his son to save us from our sins, to save us from the penalty of past sin, to save us from the pain of present sin, to save us from the presence of future sin, all together one day, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You know, my friend, we're going to call him Jack, who didn't have the best experience with his parents in the same text. After saying he was jealous of the love and admiration some of us had for our parents and fathers because he didn't have that feeling about his mother or father. He also said this, I don't know how that shaped me, but I think I feel about my wife's parents how you feel about your own. Maybe you didn't have a father like Joseph. Maybe you didn't have a mother like Mary. None of us had perfect parents. None of us had perfect fathers but it's never too late to have the father you've always wanted. A heavenly father who has all of the strengths and none of the weaknesses, who works a series of miracles to secure your eternal happiness, who sent his son to save you from your sins by taking the punishment we deserve and by rising again to prove that death has no victory over us. Your eternal happiness requires a series of miracles. Most of them have already been accomplished. There's only one that's possibly left, the one that takes place in here. Do you believe in miracles? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are kind. And your love for us to us, never fails. Pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray that you would write these eternal truths upon our heart, whether you're rewriting things that have been written many times before, whether you're writing it for the first time, and we are just now grabbing hold of you and all of your goodness. Oh, Father, would you, would you let that stick? Would you let your promises ring true today and forever? We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.